Lord Jesus, thank you that you invite us to build our lives on your love and that you want to fill us with that love. And thank you, Lord Jesus, you have never met a person, never laid eyes on someone that you did not see them as made in the image of God and of infinite worth. And I pray for every single one of us tonight, no matter what kind of junk the enemy tells us, that you would remind us how you see us. And let that love shine through. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, team, and thank you, evening congregation. It's great to be with you guys. Um, and uh, welcome myself back to a congregation I used to pastor a while ago. Um, and it's really nice to be with you. Welcome, everyone. So a couple of weeks' time, it's Easter. So I thought I could kind of start peeping into some of the things that, uh, that, that fit inside uh, that space. Um, and so when, if you've got your phones, you can turn to Mark chapter 15, um, and, uh, or else you can just listen up to me. Now, a couple of months ago in America, um, Joe Biden was inaugurated as president, and he felt it was really important. Now, if you think that you're a, you have a chance to speak to your nation, a chance to speak as the world is watching, you would be focusing in on, you know, absolute critical factors and features. And at one point in his speech, he said this, we need to know that there's such a thing as truth and that truth matters. I don't know if anyone else noticed that. There's such a thing as truth and that truth matters. Why on earth would someone use something to say something so self-evident? Why would he need to say that? Now, we all know there's been all this fake news and, and, and conspiracy theories and history being reinvented and like events supposedly happened that didn't happen and events haven't happened that did and history's being blurred. Now, one of the things that you can know when... When you're dealing with truth, is that your hostile witnesses corroborate what's going on. In other words, when your opponents are standing together with you saying, I think that's true, or, or even inadvertently affirming truth. So tonight, I want us to look at the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. And so we're going to go to Mark chapter 15. Judas has already betrayed Jesus Jesus has been arrested in Gethsemane, abandoned by his disciples, and found deserving of death by the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. And just as you think that things couldn't get any worse, Jesus has gone deeper and deeper into unimaginable pain, injustice, abandonment, suffering, until even God the Father turns away from Jesus, and the enemies of Jesus seem to be winning and Jesus in the story, especially as Mark records it, but in most of the Gospels, is overwhelmingly silent. He says very little. So the way Mark builds the story is that you're almost seeing something, hearing something through the eyes and through the lips of Jesus' enemies, his accusers, 
So we read this in Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, replied Jesus. Now I'm going to jump a little bit to verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is the Praetorium and called together a whole company of soldiers. And it describes how they uh, began to beat him, shoved a crown of thorns in his head. And importantly, they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again, they struck him on the head and hit him with a, with a great big stick, a staff, and spat on him. And, and they mocked him like pretend worship, falling on their knees, etc. And then they led him out to crucify him, and there was a notice written of the charge against him, and it was written, the charge for which he would be crucified is that he was the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews actually, in John's gospel, protested to Pilate. He says, listen, what I've written, I've written. You said this is the charge against him. So, uh, yes, Jesus' enemies. Then we read about two rebels crucify uh, with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, mocked him, saying to themselves, He saved others. Let him save himself. Let this Messiah... This king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So they want Jesus to save himself. And so those who crucified with him heaped insults on him. And we know after a while, one of those, actually in Luke's gospel, his own insults rang hollow and he turned to Jesus and asked to be remembered in his kingdom. And so at noon, darkness came of the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some thought he was calling out to Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now that's kilometers away. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said this, surely this man was the son of God. Now we've got three titles and they come from hostile witnesses. One is Jesus was king of the Jews. The other, the Jews said, if, you know, you're Messiah. And here we have the centurion who himself who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's not saying this with any hint of mockery. He started out, as it were, as a hostile witness. But as he's gone through the day, which probably began for him really early, as, as he would have been doing crowd control from, from the moment the Sanhedrin in the dark brought Jesus to Pilate's house. And so he's had a full day of watching this man. And so he comes and says, surely this man is the son of God. So let's look at some of these titles that actually come from hostile witnesses. The first is that um, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Pilate intended to cross-examine Jesus and, and, and find out 
whether Jesus was going to plead guilty to the charge that was being brought against him. You see, if Jesus claimed to be king, it would have made him guilty of treason against Rome. So Pilate sees through the politics of the Jewish leaders, and he actually tries, if you read the story in detail, to get Jesus released. But he tries to do it by winning over the support of the crowds, but he doesn't realize, of course, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and that they've all rigged the system. If there's going to be a popular vote, Jesus is going to die. And so Pilate gets outmaneuvered, and although against his better judgment, he couldn't be bothered to really hassle. It's like a staggering thought when justice has been entrusted to you. Couldn't be bothered. The real identity of Jesus presents him with too much of a problem. And if you think about that, the real identity of Jesus presents people with a problem. And he thought he could just push it aside. We know from John's gospel that is off the legal record, not part of the trial. Pilate calls him in quietly and says to him, uh, you know, starts questioning him. And Jesus says to him, if you're on the side of truth, you'll, you'll listen. And Pilate says this, what's truth? He needed to listen to Joe Biden. There is such a thing as truth. Truth really matters. And it really matters whether something happened or not. But in this world of intrigue, Pilate almost is already living in a post-truth world. He's so cynical, he just kind of dismisses it. And, and in some ways, many of us are not thinking seriously enough about truth. We're, we're almost thinking our faith is all about emotions and feeling. But one of the things that Easter reminds us is that there is there are historical events that actually must make you stop, must make you think. You've got to work out what you think actually happened in and through the person. This man called Jesus, who again and again claimed to be much more than a man. King of the Jews. The second title is that of Messiah. During his crucifixion, Jesus endures the scorn and this mocking from the people of Jerusalem, from the Roman battalion, from the thieves who were crucified with him, although one of them subsequently repents of that, from those passing by, from the chief priests, from the teachers of the law, etc. And, and, and that's the heart of their scorn. If you're so powerful, if, if you are remotely who you've given us the impression you think you are, then save yourself. Save yourself. Interesting. None of them dispute this, that Jesus was able to meaningfully and powerfully change the lives of others. That people who were trapped by the devil, he was able to set them free. People who were sick, he was able to make them well. People who were excluded from society, he was able to save them and make them, sorry. He was able to save them and make them feel like they belonged and mattered. And people who felt stuck in their sin, Jesus forgave them. And even his opponents recognized how Jesus could save others. But their criteria for a good Messiah was not that he saved others or cares for others. 
they thought that their Messiah should be able to save himself. This self-saving power was their criteria. Now, I mean, if you think about it, that the, their ultimate test for the Messiah was that he should be selfish. That's where they think power really comes from. They could not conceive that in those very moments he was willingly giving, giving himself to pay the price for their sin and for our sin. You see, he was going to be a substitute, an atoning sacrifice. Isaiah wrote of this Messiah that they would then quote, and they weren't thinking about, but it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep going astray. But the Lord, each of us turning to his own way. We're just doing our own thing. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. And so Jesus, by not saving himself, was saving others. And you know, paying that price is still one of the greatest signs that the God of heaven is revealing himself through you. I heard of a, a story about 200 years ago, an island was having, as in the country of Ireland, was facing a very severe famine. It was known as the, uh, uh, a series of potato famines. And in one community, the, uh, the people got together and they sent a letter to their landlord. And essentially the letter said this, we, we, we've, we've, we're broke, we've got no money, we are deep in debt, and we simply, simply cannot pay our rent. Please, sir, they asked, please cancel our debt. Now the landlord was actually a vicar, a, a minister in York, which is across in England, and somehow he owned the land they were on, and he wrote back to them, and he said, I'm afraid I can't cancel your debt. It would set a very bad precedent. You must pay me every cent you owe. But here's something that might help you. And he enclosed the check for a ridiculously large sum of money. Clearly, he was, belonged to some wealthy family in the past or something like that. And he gave them most of his wealth, enough to cover the rent, enough to settle their debts, enough to feed their families, enough to buy enough to start the next round of harvest so that they would not uh, be disadvantaged. You see, God has done something similar for us. In his goodness, we owe him a debt that we cannot possibly pay. And in his love and in his grace, he has come. And in Jesus dying for us on the cross, you see, God's criteria for Messiah is that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a payment ransom for many. And the third title comes from the centurion who was overseeing the crucifixion itself. He was almost certainly present during the trial. He would have seen how Jesus was interrogated. He would have been in charge the moment Jesus was handed over. His soldiers, he would have overseen what his soldiers did in that courtyard. And one of the things that would have been definitive during that time is he would have seen the absence of anger and hatred in Jesus. 
he would have heard Jesus look at the apostle John and say um, of John and Mary, in his dying death on the cross, assign John the care of his mother and assign Mary a place of belonging in John's home. He would have heard the prayer of Jesus to forgive him, the centurion. He would have watched as that thief turned to Jesus in confession and heard Jesus make this promise, today you will be with me in paradise. And obviously you would have experienced that eclipse. You would have felt the earth shake and you would have heard Jesus shout, it is finished, which includes the idea it's paid, it's settled, it's over, it's done. He would have watched as life left Jesus and how Jesus, trusting God, prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this hostile witness finds his heart changed to the point where he simply cannot avoid a conclusion. Surely this man is the Son of God. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm not sure which way it worked. Was it intuition? Was it heart and then logic? Or was he wrestling with truth all the way through? Maybe thinking of that encounter with Pilate, what is truth? Maybe these words burning in and, and because there's a huge amount of logic in his words. See, one of the things he'd have wrestled with is if Jesus was an innocent man, then he's an incredibly good man. And for example, the thief on the cross said to the other thief, listen, we know we've done something wrong. We're getting punished for actual stuff we did. This man has done nothing wrong. He would have watched how Jesus was framed by a crowd that was stirred up against him. If this is an innocent man, he's an incredibly good man. And if he is a good man, then he is more than a man. Why do I say that? Because no one who's merely human can promise someone forgiveness of sins and the presence with God in paradise. You'd be a psychotic liar if you think you have the power to do what God alone can do. You cannot be good to claim that you, in and of yourself, hold the keys to paradise. And as this man goes through this experience, it's like truth really matters. And so as Jesus dies, and it's interesting, we don't know the centurion's name. But a lot of people believe that we meet him again in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, the first Gentile full-on convert by that stage, posted in Caesarea. Now, we don't know if that was true. But it's interesting that when Peter preaches that sermon, he says, guys, you know all about Jesus. <laughs> you know all about Jesus. And then he unpacks the implications of Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and the gospel to the Gentiles 
to the nations begins to flow. So here's the thing. Eventness matters. Yeah, we've got hostile witnesses saying stuff about God. Some of it, I mean, about Jesus. Some of it inadvertently, and some of it deeply, deliberately. Some of it almost like being drawn out of them. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asked that question of his disciples, and they said to him, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who do I say Jesus is? You see, where you land does not determine the fate of Jesus. Where you land on this question determines your future. That's how decisive he is. This one man, secular historians freely admit, has had greater influence on global history, world trends, than any individual who has lived. Some of them even maintain he has more influence than whole nations, entire armies, and his influence seems indestructible. You just can't seem to get rid of this king of the Jews. You can't get rid of Messiah. You can't get rid of the Son of God. Even though you crucify him, the witness of people who were terrified initially becomes so confident he is alive. You crucified him, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, but God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. So the question is, who do you really think he is? Truth matters. Now, it's great when the truth touches our hearts. It's great to sense what God does. But don't build your faith on the sense, on the moment, on his presence. As much as that is real, I accept that. I experience that. And I promise you there will be days when that is not enough or when that seems hard to find. But if what we see in the person of Jesus is true and truth matters, then you can believe in him. Not because your feelings are high or low. Not because things are going great or not. You believe in him because you've come to understand that God has stepped into history, paid for your sin and mine, and is offering you life. Let's pray together. Just being reminded, I was 15 years old, nearly turning 16. When I seriously considered the person of Jesus and surrendered my life to him, it literally changed my life. And maybe someone here tonight, I don't know how old you are, that doesn't really matter, but I want to invite you to recognize who Jesus is.
and confess Him as Savior. Trust Him, not yourself, not your goodness. Trust what He's done for you. Trust Him. And put your faith in Him. Recognize it's the beginning of a journey. It may feel like a climax. It may feel like an end. It may feel like you're wrestling through a whole lot of questions and that you're coming towards the end. I promise you, it's the beginning. It's the beginning. But it becomes the beginning of a new life that Jesus has come to give you. And maybe you've been in church for a long while. You've heard all this stuff, but tonight Jesus literally stands before you and asks you, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Why? Because he wants you to recognize the truth of who he is and invite you personally to trust him.